Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast. I'm Chaz Hathaway. Today we're going to share the experience of David, and I'll give a little forewarning if you're listening with children. This has, well, it's it's a uh, distressing, starts out as a distressing near-death experience and uh, is a little bit frightening. I, I, I promise I'm not doing it because it's near Halloween time. That has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Not a big fan of the scary aspects of Halloween anyway, but uh, but this is a little bit frightening for, for part of it. And um, But I hope that you will hear it because, or I, I'd like to share it because of what it teaches about God's love and how he is waiting on us to, or, or that he's available to us uh, when we call out to him. Anyway, so this is David. Uh, this is from the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website, enderf.org. And this is what David says. My name is David. I live in Hawaii. I am 32 years old. And I'm a survivor of a near-death experience. I have not spoken to any support groups of this since then. It has been, or it has had a significant change on my life. And at times, it seemed as though I was crazy. Now I know that the crazy part was simply a kind of denial and doubt. The year was 1990, and I was living in the East Bay of Northern California. I had just returned from a skiing trip in, at Squaw Valley. It was the first time I'd ever seen snow. Somehow I had come down with a cough that seemed like nothing at first, so I continued to go to work as a waiter at the Mer uh, uh, Berkeley post Marriott. I believe at this time the weather condition in the Bay Area was very extreme as it was somewhere near the ending of the year, which was very cold for this island boy. I was a young and angry man, angry with God because I was gay. So this I took with me on my journey to the other side, as I know I should never be this angry again. It was late evening when I returned home to my Auntie Maley's house. No one was home. I think my aunt and uncle may have gone to a family party, and my sister was still doing late-night PBX management at the Oakland Sheraton. My cough had gotten much worse by then, and I found it very difficult to take in and let out my breath without a struggle. At that point, I could vaguely remember someone's personal account of her bout with walking pneumonia when I was eating lunch at the ski lodge in Squaw Valley. I was wrapped in, a very, in very warm clothing to keep from getting colder. The wind was loud outside, and I kept hearing my father's voice in my head saying, Boy, what's wrong with you? Don't you know there's no sick in this family? His voice in my head made me feel strong again. I stood up in attention and answered, Yes, Dad, I know. I put on my mittens, my winter cap, my shoes, and headed for the door to walk this cold off. I failed in my walk less than a quarter of the ways down the neighborhood block and struggled quickly to stand up and look my best to make it back home, hoping that the neighbors did not see my weakness. I was dying, and I knew it. A little denial before death is always natural, as it always seems that the experience is very surreal. I was back on my couch, unable to move comfortably. I finally made it back to my room to lie down. 
It was a very small spare room in the house, much like a large walk-in closet. The room was decorated nicely with all the things that I liked. The room's aesthetics alone were a great comfort. In the middle of the night, I had finally drifted off to sleep and was wakened by the hard stabbing pain in my chest. My eyes were wide open and looking upwards toward the ceiling in terror. My mouth was wide open and I was unable to draw in the next breath. I was choking and convulsing in my bed. The pain was beyond words. My vision was now leaving and I could only hear the sounds and feel the pain slowly subside from some kind of natural drug euphoria released from my brain. Then there was no more physical pain. Still, I could hear the body and its last kicks against the bedside wall. And then there was nothing. I'm still here, I thought. Perhaps I should get up and see exactly what all the commotion was about. I walked toward my bedroom door and stopped. I turned around and was unable to view the body that still rested in my bed. My room was the same, but different. It seemed that everything I owned had a strange and beautiful glow to them. A blue-green aura of light was emitted from all things that I owned. I saw my foot and handprints glow glowed there, where I walked or where I touched. It was fascinating, and, and I was so preoccupied by this that I temporarily forgot about what had just happened. I wasn't sure if I was to wait here in my room or make a move for adventure. At first I tried for the bedroom door and reached out to open it. My arm went through up to my elbows. I could sense the feel of others out there who wallowed in great sorrow like nothing else mattered. It was frightening, so I pulled my arm back in. I looked towards my window and saw that the branches of the tree kept hitting up against the window from the storm still going on outside. I considered returning to my body, but it seemed like it was no longer an option. The single light bulb that I left on, my, uh, on above my head was starting to glow brighter and brighter. This was the entrance, I told myself, so I decided to reach out to the light and go. Go I did. Very, very fast. All of my life's record played back from my birth until my death. I went to a very stormy place. This was perhaps the destination that I'd reached when having died in anger at a time when I could not remember having much peace in my heart. I remember mentioning that at this place there was an after echo of or an after echo in my thought voice. My voice was so, or my voice would echo straight out towards the horizon before me, and I always returned back into me from the horizon behind me. This I thought was very annoying. This place I reached was not a comfortable environment at all. Storms like no other storm seen on this earth would unfold before me in the sky, and on the ground of this new and shaken planet. There were various sizes of volcanic events around me. They would blow steam and heat at any given moment. Sometimes ghost apparitions would appear in the steam blast 
and start to wander around, lost as if searching for something they cannot find. One of the ghosts blasted out of the vent nearest me. It was a woman. She frightened me. She was dressed in very ancient garb, torn in places, and appeared to be very dirty. She had no feet below, so she sort of drifted on the air. She was approaching my space very slowly. When she reached close enough for me to touch, I chose to communicate. I asked her if she was able to tell me the name of this place. She would not answer. However, she slowly crept even closer to me, as if she was going to take, steal, or hurt me. I know all thoughts are heard here, so you can't hide a plan for yourself. Instead, you just have to come out and say it. So I said very sternly, Who are you? She then tore off the part of the shroud that hid her face and showed me only bone and skull. Her jaw opened wide as if dislocated, and she rose completely out of her robes and swooped down at me for a bite. It was my left shoulder, my spirit body. The pain was so great it was worse than death. At that very moment as she swooped around in midair to take an, on another bite of my spirit, I dropped down on my knees and cried out for God. The spirit woman placed her hands on her head and disappeared back into the ground vent. I noticed the other approaching spirits did the same. I still cried out for God and asked if he would forgive me for speaking so crude of him back on earth and if he would accept me back and take me home away from this strange land. It was at that moment that I also realized that my voice would no longer echo and return back to me. Instead, I would roar out his name unto the summit of the horizon, and his name alone would explode into light and sound. The rest of the spirits around me would show as if God was not any comfort to them at all. This was sad to me, but it was also a joy for me to know that God had accepted my apologies, as the light on the horizon would expand in my direction. So beautiful was his light, words cannot express. His light was like the rising sun, and like the sun, he rose up from behind the mountains into the sky. Love poured into every part of my being, and my soul was revitalized. The planet was also changing under his light. I saw parts of the mountains tear open and gush forth in the form of waterfalls. The dark clouds above my head shrank backward at an amazingly swift pace. God has come. His light is warm and welcoming. I had then reached a high level of calm and peace. Slowly his light would shed across the land. You could see grass come up out of the ground. Huge trees would tear out of the surface and stand tall before me. Birds of all kinds would fly about the sky. All of God's creations came out of the forest as if to greet me. This was the grandest welcome back home. Tears of joy and laughter are all, the, all of the words I can sum up from this experience. His light then grew extremely bright. 
I had been completely bathed in white light. God held me lovingly in his embrace for a time. His light grew brighter until I could barely see anything. At this point, I could sense that it was time for me to go back to earth. Looking at God, I said, Please, Lord, can I stay? Hush, he would say. Your time on earth has not been completed. Now go off and be a good lad, for there is much more for you to learn. I thanked God endlessly during my journey home to earth. Then, wham! I'm back in my body again. Enough. I don't know if it's really a word, but if that's really the word, but that's what it feels like when you first get a body back. So, enough, okay? Yes, I was back in my living vehicle, checking all systems for go. No problems detected. The lung system was completely cleared. I was shocked, disoriented, and a little confused. These are not the words that come to mind after entering a human body. The next could be forms of denial. So here comes the denying man's logic check question. Did I smoke too much pot or go on a weird trip? The answer lies in the evidence around me. I went for a walk through the house. My winter jacket and gloves were thrown around in different areas like a, in a struggle. The telephone was still programmed for 911. The operator scolded me. I had to check. I was back into my room with my back against the wall. I slowly sat back down and waited for the sun. This had to be one of the most beautiful mornings that I had ever seen. The sky was bright pink, and the sun embraced the horizon. Even now, when there are days when life gets too tense, that is when I know it is time to stop and watch the sunrise. Many times I can still see him smiling in the sun and shining on my face. That is a comfort to me. And so is the knowledge that we have a home to go to when we have finished life, life's lessons and labor. That's the end of David's experience. And beautiful, beautiful experience. And also quite creepy for a time. Definitely qualifying as a uh, distressing near-death experience. But, but, and, you know, actually let me come back to it before I get to that. There was another point that I found interesting. Um, so as he's first left his body, he's standing around, and he says he didn't look back and see his body. He didn't look at the body on the floor. But based on some of the things he said later, I think he knew it was there. And he knew, you know, he talks about deciding whether or not to go back to his body. So I think he knew it was there. He just didn't want to have anything to do with it, really. So he's kind of deciding, should I go venturing about? Or should I just wait for further instruction? Or what should I do? And uh, then he describes, as he's walking around the house, that all of his possessions, everything in the room, has this blue-green aura of light around it. Now, what that means, I have no idea. He even says, I saw my foot and handprints glowed where I walked or where I touched. Now, was this where his foot and handprints 
Were these the foot and handprints of his spirit body walking around the house? Or was this where he could see that he had in his body walked or touched? I don't know. He doesn't clarify that. But he says that he was so fascinated by it that um, he temporarily forgot about what had just happened. And he was deciding whether to wait here in his room or to make a move for adventure. And uh, first he tries to go out the bedroom door and his hand passes right through up to the elbow. I mean, whoop, right up to the elbow. And that's when things start getting weird because he says that right after that, he says, I could sense and feel others out there who wallowed in great sorrow like nothing else mattered. Now, there's an interesting aspect to uh, that, that you learn about... Um, suicide in near-death experiences and that is that it appears that at least spirits immediately on the other side I don't know beyond that but um, you know the first spirits that they meet and and many of the um, first experiences they have come from something of the frame of mind they were in so um, as one person has put it um, many who were not suicides by by our earthly definition of suicide, but were people who had given up on life. And maybe they were just, you know, didn't care anymore. And they had just kind of given up on trying to be good, trying to be happy or find joy in their life. They had just given up on it and they were just living whatever. And that took on so many different forms. One, it was allowing depression to get the best of them or and, and I say it that way because there are those who have have genuine um, psychological condition um, conditions of depression and so forth and I don't want to suggest that they were they would be among them um, because we've heard from these experiences some who have that experience go straight into light and joy and peace and everything but uh, some who just kind of give in to the depression and and like you know what I don't even care anymore I'm not gonna try you know and and they give up and and yet they don't they're not committing suicide by you know uh, standards that we have here but they are giving up on life and some even say you know they give up on life in the sense that you know what I'm gonna just do fun things and you know if I get killed in the process these big exciting you know life you know, skydiving and, and, you know, rock climbing and anything that could be a little bit dangerous but is fun, I'm going to do it so that if I happen to die, well, you know, at least I'm free of all this pain and suffering of this life. And, you know, taking unnecessary risks, I guess is the point. So they've given up in some way. It's like they've committed suicide short of killing themselves. And it sounds like, from many things that I've read, that there is something to that. And so they're taken to places or, or speak to beings who can offer them insight to help them overcome that. And uh, so for some, it takes a great deal of time and effort, and it's very difficult. For those who are coming back, um, they may, you know, whether they overcome it or not, it's hard to say, but they're given that opportunity to come back here where overcoming such things is easier to do 
because they are still in a place where the depression pushes at them. And without the resistance that the depression provides, it's very difficult to overcome the spiritual tendencies that, uh, that lead to giving up and so forth. Um, because if you're in a place of love and joy and peace, and you're supposed to overcome your tendency to give in, well, it's kind of hard to do that when there's not that resistance. It sounds weird, but that seems to be the case. This life is the place to learn those lessons and learn to overcome. Anyway, the point in bringing that up is that uh, is that this person, David, seems to be in such a state, a, a place of anger, eh? anger against God. He says he's gay, and he's probably feeling some shame, self-shame about his, his either his life choices or his the way he is, it's unclear, but he's very angry with God. And because of that anger that he, he has, he says he's in, his spirit was in a place of anger. And so when he passed on, the first place that he goes to beyond this earth is this place with restless spirits. And I don't want to reread all this uh, terrible stuff that he experiences except to say that uh, it seems like this was the place of people who had given up or the people who didn't care or hated or were angry or something like that. And who these people were, whether they were disembodied spirits that had left the earth or whether they were um, unembodied spirits who would never come to earth, just angry souls, it, it's unclear. It's totally unclear. But, you know true to in any you know zombie-like movie um he has this experience with this woman who attacks him and uh and interestingly enough and terrifying enough he feels deathly pain i, I mean he says my spirit body it was my left shoulder my spirit body is in pain I don't know how that works. I don't get that. How can a spirit feel physical pain? And yet, he's obviously feeling it because he says the pain was so great it was worse than death. And at that very moment, as she swooped around in midair to take another bite of my spirit, he says, I dropped down on my knees and cried out for God. And this is where the lesson that I think is worth bringing this whole frightening story up um, it comes into play, is that when he cries out for God and even asks for forgiveness, he says, for speaking so crude of him back on earth and ask that he would accept him back and take him home away from this strange land. He's asking for forgiveness. He's asking uh, he's apologizing for the way he had treated God, the way he'd become angry with him, and asked him to accept his apology and ask him to take him from this strange place. And no sooner, I mean, at the moment, at that moment, he says, that I also realized that it, it, at that moment, the, the strange voice echo that was so antagonizing to him stopped, the woman who was attacking him 
immediately left. Um, she disappeared back into the ground vent where she'd come from. And the other uh, apparitions, as he put it, uh, dispersed as well. Everything, you know, all the darkness, all the frightening, even the, uh, the terrible storm clouds, which he said were much more uh, tumultuous than storm clouds that we have on earth, they, they swept out of the sky faster than, than you could imagine po- being possible. And they're swept away as a light rises on the horizon, just like a sunrise. And in this horizon, in this sunrise, there is a person that he says, well, let me, let me put it the way that he says it. So beautiful was his light, words cannot express. His light was like the rising sun. And like the sun, he rose up from behind the mountains into the sky. Love poured into every part of my being, and my soul was revitalized. And he goes on and he talks about how the, the uh, terrible mountains would tear open and waterfalls out in, to, to create a beautiful landscape. And the light poured over the land uh, across the ground, revealing beautiful grass and trees would tear out of the surface and stand tall before him. Birds would, of all kinds would fly through the sky. And he says that all of God's creatures came out of the forest as if to greet me. This was the grandest welcome back home. Tears of joy and laughter are all of the words I can sum up from this experience. His light then grew extremely bright. I had been completely bathed in white light. God held me lovingly in his embrace for a time. His light grew brighter until I could barely see anything. I mean, wow. Talk about deliverance. Talk about delivery. Talk about mercy. So anyone who has a distressing near-death experience, and it's not just those who die depressed. It's not just those who, who die suffering, but many who are die, who do die in a very low state of mind, They've got to remember to call out to God. But here's something that I think may not clearly come out of this, and yet should. And that is that you don't have to wait until you die to call out to God for his mercy and for his love and for his forgiveness. This calling out to him is part of our very spiritual nature. When we do it, we are delivered. It may not be as obvious or as clear in this life. For some, it will be. For some who call out to him, the the effect will be immediate and grand. To others, it may happen slowly over time, but it will happen. There's no one in this world that is alive today who is beyond the reach of God's love. You can't go that far. It's not possible. Seeking him, calling out to him, he hears you, and his light will come to you. And someday, when we go to the other side, that light will embrace us. That light will absolutely bring us home. 
So we will now go ahead and finish up by saying that if you would like to support the podcast financially, it would really help if you go to patreon.com slash ndecast and and become an ongoing monthly subscriber. It would really help. Also, you can contact the podcast with a question or your own experience or just a comment by calling 970-NDE-CAST or by emailing neardeathexperiencepodcast at gmail.com. And with that, thank you all of you so much again for listening. <laughs>